Yeah, and to, to be fair, I think a lot of what happens in elite sport in terms of internal research, general public and academics would never, ever see. It either wouldn't get released because uh, they don't want other teams to gain the same advantages as potentially the team that does it, or they're just not interested in publishing because it doesn't make any difference to them. It does no benefit. In fact, it's actually more awkward than it is a benefit to them. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bubbs, Performance Nutritionist. This is season seven, episode number 15, and today I'm chatting with Dr. Andreas Casper, PhD, Performance Nutritionist for Newcastle United FC in the English Premier League, and academic practitioner at Liverpool John Morris University. Andreas has published numerous papers in performance nutrition, and in today's conversation, we'll cover three in particular. From paper to podium, evaluation of the translational potential of performance nutrition-related research on how to translate what's in the science to your practice on the field or in the gym. Then we'll shift gears and talk about another paper, food first, but not always food only, recommendations for using dietary supplements in sport. This paper covers the when and how supplementation can be key for elite and high-performing athletes over strictly a food-first approach. And finally, Andreas will share some of his unpublished data in recent work on football in advance of its publication, all about what professional football players actually take in during a game. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode with Andreas, loads of practical applications for your context and your athletes. And of course, you can find all the links to the papers discussed here in the show notes at athleteperformancenutrition.com. All right, let's do this. My conversation with Newcastle United's Andreas Casper. Andreas, really appreciate you carving out some time today for us. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, looking forward to, to chatting. Fabulous. Well, listen, maybe the best place to start would be to uh, give everyone a little whirlwind tour of your background before we dive into some of your work and uh, your work currently at Newcastle in professional football. Yeah, so I guess um, I'm still quite a, what you class as a young practitioner. Um, I've been working, well, I'm only 31, um, but I've been working in sport for for 10 years now. So it's a bit of a, a strange one. I'd be classed as young, but at the same time, I would say my experience probably isn't a small amount. Um, my current role is a high-performance sport practitioner who specializes in nutrition and based mainly at Newcastle United Football Club now I'm, I'm full-time and that's obviously not not the the place I've only ever been but that's the place I'm with now started beginning of last season so that would be 2022 and um, and then alongside that I do still do some consultancy with England Rugby Union and um, I've done that since 2014 so approximately 10 years now with them so that's the one sort of remaining job that I've kept kept going the whole time. Um, I've sort of flicked in and out, uh, as you do when you consult, as you probably know. Yeah, national teams are good for that, aren't they? Or, yeah. uh, well, listen, I'd love to pick your brain a bit more on that sort of trajectory from the last 10 years, 21 to 31. You know, what are some of the um, experiences or challenges that, that stand out for you when you think back? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question, to be fair. Um 
the challenges, many, many challenges, as, <laughs> as you probably guess. But um, I, I sort of started my uh, academic career uh, doing sports science um, at a university called Liverpool John Moores University, which is quite well known in the world of, of nutrition now. Um, back when I started sports science, nutrition wasn't really a, a master's program they offered. Um, I did my sports science degree for, for three years and then um, went straight into the master's um, in sports nutrition under, um, I'm sure you've probably heard of these guys, but James Morton is one of them and, and Graham Close is the other. Um, I did my project, my major project in that third year with James and, and those two managed to talk me into the first year of their master's. Originally, I was going to leave to be a primary school teacher. <laughs> so um, I'm quite happy they they did talk me into it. That's, that's, that's tremendous. We had uh, Graham on the podcast uh, like last season. And it's interesting. There's a few practitioners that were also teachers. But I think there's some skill sets there as as yeah. teaching that do translate. But uh, but yeah, so and as you're going through that that program and you're working rugby, you know, uh, what are some of those uh, early, maybe early career moments? I'm sure a lot of listeners would like to hear about those early career moments where, you know, potentially what were, you know, the classroom uh, studies are, are not totally matching up with what we see in the real world space. Yeah, I think the main thing was probably work-life balance at that point. I think um, as a practitioner coming through, I think if I prioritized my my social life and and that side of things, especially during that master's year, I don't think I would have ever, ever progressed. So I feel um, a lot of practitioners talk about work-life balance, but I feel in, unless you work in elite sport, you don't really realize what what work-life balance means because there's, there's not much balance. Um, and I think it, it's almost an impossible thing to achieve if you're really ingrained and in the trenches uh, full-time with a with a team. Um well, probably back then it was master's year. I started um, obviously working with England rugby alongside Graham in that year. I started my first ever paid role in in nutrition, uh, which was with Blackburn Rovers Football Club at the time. It was a championship team. Um, and it was trying to balance academia and, and doing the master's. I was work, working part-time to fund it as a bartender. Um, I've got a few of those bits in my locker, a few... Uh, yeah, there you go. Shakes. There's some more um, skills that help out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and to be fair, in, in that master's year, I was still chefing at the time as well. So I'd do like a a Friday, uh a Friday evening chefing and then onto the bar work, and then Saturday chefing onto the bar work in the nighttime, and then Sunday's my only day off, and then obviously Monday to Friday is PhD and placements and and working. So so there isn't isn't much work-life balance at all if i'm honest full tilt isn't it? i think that's the reality and it's good to be up yeah. front with uh you know the, the quote-unquote balance is you know periods of trying to top back up and fill up the tank as best you can but like you say when you're in the when, when you're in the thick of it, it it really is just uh yeah doing your best to keep the head above water and i feel i feel like in those first early years as well if, if you take your foot off the gas then then you miss opportunities and, and potentially you don't even get into the career you want um sport is is something where you can't just pick up a job around the corner from where you live you have to move all around the country all around the world to find find the roles and opportunities you want so yeah it, uh, things definitely sacrifice is, is something not only for the athletes themselves but I think also the practitioners that work alongside the athletes if I'm honest 
Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Listen, I want to pick your brain more on on some of the practical insights and wisdoms gleaned over the years, but maybe we can pivot here a little bit and, and get into some of your work. One of your papers, which I really enjoyed here, food first, but not always food only recommendations for using dietary supplements in sport. Yeah, this is a really uh, interesting paper, as you guys propose six reasons why a food only approach may not always be optimal for athletes. Could you tell us a bit about how this uh, project started? Yeah, so um, after after my master's, I moved straight into a PhD and um, spent a lot of time doing the PhD. And it, it, it did um, take its turns on the journey in terms of what, what I was writing about, but it ended up being um, or the subject areas surrounded translating research into practice. And the um, the papers that we, we wrote um, and put together were very much dictated by questions that practitioners were having. So say I was five, six years into, into working or, or so, um, you know, younger practitioners, because nutrition is a very, um, a very young discipline in the world of sports science, young practitioners would come to people like me who at the time, you know, I probably still didn't know what I was doing. Uh, asking questions like what should we be doing with in this situation or that situation or players asking you know should I be taking this is there any evidence around CBD or, or whatever it was at the time um, and we'd we'd structure research to try and answer some of those questions or provide an opinion um, and yeah so myself uh, along with Graham um, there was Neil Walsh uh, who's also based at Liverpool John Moore's um, and one of probably the godfathers of nutrition, Ron Morn, um, jumped on a piece uh, specifically surrounding something we were a bit passionate about, which was the fact that everywhere all of a sudden was turning towards food first. We shouldn't take any supplements. You can get everything you need from food, et cetera, et cetera, without actually considering what, what the consequences to that were. Um, so we we wrote this paper with the, the, uh, the caveat that, okay, maybe there's certain situations where not only would it be beneficial to supplement, but you might even be doing a disservice to the athletes you're working with if you don't supplement. And um, so our six points um, surrounded things like logistical challenges around travel, um, you know, what you can actually put in your kit bag, um, whether you can get the right amounts of certain uh, nutrients uh, or compounds um, in the concentrations you need to get the beneficial effect. Um, if we pause there real quick, uh, Andreas, just on the travel piece, I mean, I think that's a really important one, particularly for younger athletes, because this idea of portable nutrition, you know, we often call them supplements, but oftentimes it's like, what, to your point, what can we actually carry from point A to point B on the road, young athletes in high school, uh, college in the, in the North America, US, could you just touch mm -hmm. on, on that for a minute of, of, you know, some of the challenges you've seen and maybe some of the strategies that you've used to overcome those? Yeah, so, well... Obviously, with the plane stuff itself, there's a lot of um, what's the word? Uh, a lot of barriers to to good nutritional practice, especially in the airport. Um, so I think preparation was the the key thing of of the way that we overcame a lot of the challenges when we travel with teams or when we travel individual athletes travel on planes themselves. Um, I think there's also obviously issues around food staying cold, etc. The main, like these, probably the easy ones that tick a box from from the really applied perspective were 
with little things like um so we take hydration tablets through with us uh, like the effervescence in the tubes and we take like an empty water bottle or a um some sort of container and then fill it after security just like really little easy simple fixes for how do we get hydrated without having to rely on the shops or the restaurants but still have options available you know if we're say we're on a long haul flight we know that regular protein intake is really important for maintenance of muscle mass especially when we're sedentary or inactive so how can we get protein into them easiest way is potentially taking powder supplement or sachets of powder protein powder or protein bars or something along those those lines as a way of just ticking that box okay it might not be the um the most beneficial or the way that we want to consume protein uh which you know preferably would be from whole food sources but it's a tick box to say okay at least i've got it in and then i can think about those whole, whole food sources when we get to destination for example yeah, I mean, especially when we again we talk about national teams when you're traveling from one continent to the other or halfway around the world, and yeah. some of these trips can get interrupted. Definitely important to have on, on hand. And to be fair, we also like we partnered with other um, like meal companies and things where we've had um, like cool bags where everything's prepped in the cool bag for shorter duration flights. We've taken things like um, dried, uh, obviously like porridge pots, but you can also get. Uh, like bolognese pasta bolognese pots where you just have to add hot water which obviously on the plane they have boiling water so so just like li little fixes because again you can't always rely on plain food <laughs> uh, especially to get the quantities and, and concentrations of certain things that you want absolutely and one of the other reasons you'd listed on in the paper was that some nutrients are abundant only in foods athletes do not like which or or eat which is certainly one that comes up can you touch on that for us? Yeah, to be fair, it was something we were talking about today. Uh, actually, I was discussing with somebody um, the fact that we use three different types of nitrate shots here at Newcastle. Obviously, all all informed sport tested, etc., for banned substances. But but we use three because certain athletes like the flavors of certain things, and athletes can be very um, uh, particular diva is not the right word yeah particular is probably a more politically way <laughs> political way of putting it um they can be quite particular in what they have um and flavor and taste and things like that is is really important um like it's it comes back to that you can lead a horse to water but can't actually make them drink and that's just it i mean it sounds so simple but it's such an important thing isn't it i mean if you have a tool that you want to apply with an athlete and you know it's going to benefit them and the biggest barrier is they just don't like the taste i mean I'm still surprised at how many times that people still bang their head against the wall trying to just, you know, almost force the player to do it rather than, as you're alluding to here, you've got three different options. Hey, let's find one that works for the player and and, and make this a heck of a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. And they can even be as particular as not just taste, but but if it's something they've used previously and they had a good game using it, they're very particular and decide that this is now in my routine. I scored a goal, so... This is the one I want. This is the brand I want. Con the content might be exactly the same, but but it, yeah, nutrition is a very psychologically powerful thing as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, 100%. And what about, uh, again, going down the list here, you've got uh, concentrated doses of some nutrients are required to correct deficiencies or promote immune tolerance. Could you shed some more light on that? 
Yeah, so I guess that that point came from things, for example, you know, one of the hot top. I say hot topics. It's been a hot topic for probably five or six years. But vitamin D, we know we can only really get D three from sunlight. So therefore, um, you know, it's not really available in the food we eat. So potentially we have to supplement to correct deficiencies in that. It might be that certain other biomarkers like B12 or iron come back as deficient. And if we were to try and correct that deficiency through food alone, it'd take us a lifetime. Yeah, particularly some like iron that are definitely uh, a long haul to correct. And to your point, I mean, we've got to, this is, uh, things are happening at pace. We've got to correct these things uh, quickly. So food becomes a challenge in, in, in that acute sense, right? Yeah. And especially when obviously there's the health impact on that, but but as a as a high performance sport practitioner, our focus is on on performance. Obviously, health is first and foremost, but but we have to get them performing. And if they've got iron deficiencies, there's there's a definitely a, an impact on that that performance, especially if they're an aerobic athlete. Yeah, a hundred percent. As we go down the yeah. list here, you know, tested supplements could help where there are concerns about food hygiene or contamination. We touched on travel. I mean. We were at the World Cup, uh, basketball World Cup, this summer in Indonesia and Philippines, and certainly there were some some potential uh, roadblocks there with things like hygiene. But uh, could you uh, tell us a bit more about uh, this point? Yeah, again, you've you've pretty much nailed it on the head in terms of, um, I guess the the rationale behind why we put that there. Um, obviously, if you go to certain countries, you might be a bit um, weary of of some of the the food and produce they produce um or, or use in their cooking so so supplementation can help you get over that i think also um a sort of side note to that is in elite sport one of the things that that we do in football is pre-screening of hotels and really detailed recce's and like we send chefs over you know, food hygiene people go and, and check out the kitchen for European um, European competition so we can actually get a heads up before we arrive on, on what it's going to be like. Um, I think I've had more issues with that with some of the, the junior teams um, who travel uh, just because their budget is, is a lot less and they can't afford to do that stuff. But with football, touch wood, we've... Uh, We've been okay so far just because we're we're quite rigorous in what we do, making sure that food food is probed to the right temperature um, and they're not going and picking up renegade food outside of the our own environment. Yeah, it's amazing how that can uh, sneak in there with uh, different mm-hmm. athletes deciding that a late night uh, delivery <laughs> or whichever I uh, deliver is a, is a good option the night before a game. Uh, if we circle all the way back to the first point, which is, you know, some athletes may require excessive energy intake. Obviously the demands of elite sport are tremendous. Can you talk through here, the potential limitations of just food only versus applying some targeted supplementation? here? Yeah. Again, like everybody has their own, um, their own levels of satiety from, from food and their own uh, appetite levels. And I think again, that probably flicks back into rugby because we have, you know, athletes who are 130, 140 kilos in some, some cases i'm not sure what that is in pounds for for yeah, yeah. 260 280 <laughs> yeah so pretty pretty large units you know linemen in american football same sort of thing um really it's very very difficult to consume the amount of food that they need to 
uh, support their training and and also keep the the kilos on. Um, so actually, say for example, they are eating, you know, however big their plate is of food. How do they get extra nutrients? And easy ways of doing that are are through liquids, through supplements, or for example, say they have traveled or they've had a game and they struggle to eat after the game. Again, supplementation can be a way that you still get those nutrients in so that they they can potentially maintain where they want to maintain or achieve what they want to achieve. Hey friends, a quick note to let you know, Athlete Performance Nutrition has a brand new short course all about leveling up your mental performance and coaching skills. Learn from the NBA's Dr. Alex Auerbach about the three mindsets of elite performance and how to leverage relationships for high performance. Learn from mental performance coach Bryce Tully about habit formation strategies for success for you and your athletes. And learn from Dr. Mike Clark, mental performance coach at the University of Arizona about strategies for having hard conversations, which let's be honest, is the reality when working in elite environments in sport. You can save 30% off the cost of this new short course with the code MINDSET at checkout. Just head over to athleteperformancenutrition.com, click on the courses tab, and use the promo code at checkout. That's athleteperformancenutrition.com, promo code MINDSET to save 30% off this tremendous new short course. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Tremendous. Well, we'll definitely include a link to the paper in the show notes for those who want to take a, a deeper dive into this paper. If we segue from here into another terrific paper you've contributed to here, From Paper to Podium, Quantifying the Translational Potential of Performance Nutrition Research. You know, this idea of taking uh, what's in the white papers and translating that on the ground, on the field, uh, is, is not always straightforward. There's a, a nice line from the paper here that I'll, I'll read out to tee this up for you. Uh, put simply, we must look beyond the abstract, the 140-character tweet and latest infographic in order to truly evaluate the scientific rigor and translational potential of performance nutrition-related research studies. So with that, uh, with that to tee things up, could you walk us through uh, how this came about? I was going to say, you might open up a whole can of worms. I'll go on off, a, off on a massive rant shortly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'll have to try it. and rein myself in. Um yeah, I guess um, again. So this was the first chapter of my my PhD thesis, and and how the other chapters sort of subsequently came came about was, you know, how do we actually conduct research in a way that is applicable to athletes in our environment, rather than grabbing certain papers and a finding that's been published in a news article and everybody jumps on a bandwagon. Um, I mean, there's you know online there's a lot of cranks. Um, that you've got to be careful to to avoid um so it's really you know how can you take a paper and actually look at how that can be applied to your own certain situation and again we we made sort of um a checklist of of what to consider we made a scoring system of how you might score it for being applicable or not applicable and then and then depending on whether it scores negative or positive obviously whether it's that applicable to your environment yeah, I mean, tremendously important, yet a step that sometimes, again, in the pace and speed of, of practice that sometimes, unfortunately, even gets overlooked. I mean, you know, being able to really tease through things to be able to see what the effect is and impact and really going back to physiology first and try to understand 
what what you're really trying to impact rather than as you say just sort of looking at the final line of a conclusion to see if it uh, is something that applies to your group yeah and also it's always a balance i guess in terms of you know if if something isn't going to do any harm and there is some potential benefits even though the study hasn't been designed specifically in in the context of or the situation of of your athletes you know it might even be worth taking the jump and and trialing it in in that setting because often you know elite sport we're always looking for what is the the way that we can gain a competitive advantage to then go and, and win mm-hmm. um or to impact a winning performance and if you wait until all the evidence is there in the exact situation that you're in you'll be the last person to be doing it and you might have missed years of actually applying the, the research um yeah, so we, we we covered things like, okay, so is is the research in, in cell models, so in vitro, or is it actually in the person in vivo? Um, because actually in vivo will be a lot more applicable than actually in cells, but people often see, you know, something, for example, you know, turmeric helps with inflammatory markers of cell damage. But it's not here, it's here. Mm. But then with with the other points that we make, actually, because there's no risk, because there's little bits of evidence to say it might have a benefit, actually, we'll give turmeric because it, it certainly won't cause any harm. So so it's not just an individual thing, but but that sort of culmination of the scoring system to to give you an idea of whether whether it can be applied. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a great point. I mean, circling back to just being at the at the you know, tip of the spear, so to speak, in, in elite sport where you've got to be thinking about these things and, and trialing things to your point where you can see some type of potential beneficial effect, but also mitigating against any risks, tr- trialing out some more of these potential opportunities um, versus obviously it's it's challenging, isn't it? With, when you're uh, particularly at a research institution because you are yeah. wanting to go through obviously the full thorough steps, but like you said, by the time all of the information comes in, then uh, you're, you're sort of a, the last one to be doing it. Yeah, and to, to be fair, I think a lot of what happens in elite sport in terms of internal research, general public and and academics would never ever see just because it either wouldn't get released because uh, they don't want other teams to gain the same advantages as potentially the team that does it or they're just not interested in publishing because it doesn't, make any difference to them it does no benefit mm. in fact it's actually more awkward than it is a benefit to them um so yeah like like i said i think um i think there's a lot of things that have, that have probably been done in practice to a decent rigorous level but people would never have any idea of it's interesting too isn't it that sort of the wisdom of the practitioner if you will of just over the years being able to see those sort of trends and and, and what works and what doesn't and obviously ideally we're putting those through then the rigors of a of a of a research uh, study but um a lot can be gleaned from from just that experience as well uh tremendous well listen you've also obviously your work in in, in pro football uh you've got some unpublished data here that's that's currently in review that you mentioned uh on fueling during football competition obviously i uh, don't want to steal any thunder here before it gets uh, released but are you yeah. able to share with us a little bit of the background there and potentially a few uh, takeaway points 
Yeah, it's in, it's in review at the moment, so there's no guarantee it will get published. Um, so this was done now maybe 18 months ago. Um, so really it's, uh, again, you know, we've, we've had our little competitive advantage, so it's it's not so much of an issue sharing, I don't think. Okay. Um, again, it came about having conversations with some of the co-authors on the paper, but really I spent a lot of time in football, worked with uh, a number of teams in the Championship and Premier League, like Fulham Football Club. I was at Chelsea for for three years um, where we had some, to be fair, some good, uh, some good results in silverware um, and then moved to, to Newcastle last year. Um, so been, been a, a, a number of teams, I guess, that have uh, allowed me to, to actually reflect on, on what athletes are doing in practice. Um, and it led to actually thinking, in my opinion, I honestly don't think that athletes or many athletes follow the guidelines both for fueling pre and leading into competition we always have this idea of periodization but again there's athletes that are at the top of their game that don't periodize carbohydrates they just eat similar carbohydrates every day so actually balances out because on a high day they're eating medium carb on a low day they're eating medium carb but actually it it actually probably balances out that's me guessing and, and anecdotally but it led to me actually thinking not only about about the periodization aspect of things and whether athletes actually do that, but do do the football players actually follow, you know, the the gram guidelines for every hour, which by the way aren't very specific to football at all. They're they're what is it, 30 to 60 grams an hour. So then we have to extrapolate that and go, okay, so that's roughly 60 to 90 grams over the course of a football match. But actually, we can't intake it during the football match because you're only allowed to intake it if it's an injury time stoppage or sorry, an injured, an injured stoppage. And um, we get a period before the game, a period midway through the game, and that's it. So it's that's another uh, another rant in itself. But but they're not very applicable to the sports we're trying to apply them to. It's all it's all done in cycling, really. Um, yeah, a lot more. Uh, um cleaner environment isn't it for for uh yeah you can do whatever you want while it's cycling output and speed and and a lot of Mm. more variables you can really hang your hat on um so so really it was okay so how did the lads structure their carbohydrate intake um so what we did as part of that is we gave them a selection that we always have on the table so habitually available with with newcastle um we coded them into basically fluids solids and semi-solids for carbohydrate content um in terms of fluid we had uh, water carbohydrate electrolyte caffeine containing fluids um and then in terms of caffeine we had caffeine gum available fluid caffeine and capsule caffeine available for everybody we weighed absolutely everything that these these players got um not only across the course of the match but in specific periods so in football, they arrive to the changing room and they have a period of time before they then go out and go to warm up. Then during the warm up period, they can sip as much as they want, eat whatever they want, take whatever they want. And then post warm up, they come in for five to 10 minutes, depending on how long the warm up is, where they have another period of time they can intake something and then they go out to play. 
They have the first half and then a break at half time, and then they have the second half. And what we did was at each of those periods of time, we quantified what was the intake of these, uh, the carbohydrates split into those sections, the, the fluid intake and the caffeine intake split into, into those sections, just to see what sort of uh, grammage they were having, milligrams of caffeine, milliliters of fluid, et cetera. And that is a massive lift just there, just to do all about that, to be able to quantify yeah. and track and grab everything the guys are, are consuming. I mean, how was that in reality, life <laughs> on the ground? I imagine that was a challenge. Carnage. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think that it wasn't, it wasn't too bad because obviously what would happen is it always goes an indoor, then an outdoor, then an indoor, then an outdoor. So to. we we would weigh everything before, or we weighed everything before everybody had everything in their place so they could select anything they wanted. And then when they went out to warm up, there was someone outside with them warming up while we were weighing everything within the changing room. And we actually had 22 players. So obviously the two keepers and and the 20 outfield players all, all completed it. Um, so I think in terms of real world observation, it's it's probably the, I'd like to think the best that's out there. The, the only other um, bits on carb intake, fluid intake, et cetera, I think have come from um, some bits from Ian Rollo and, and the Gatorade guys, um, but only in training, not actually a game situation. And the only game situation came from came from James Morton, where they just asked the athletes to recall what they had as opposed to actually weighed it. Mm-hmm. So, so I think this is the probably going to be the best stuff that's out there in terms of giving an indication of what what players actually do. Tremendous! And can you give us some general uh, vague answers on on some of the trends <laughs> or insights? Yeah, let me just, uh, sorry, let me just grab the graph up quickly. I've got it here, um, just so I don't miss anything. Um, so the graphs are uh, complex, as you use in Mark. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's lots of, obviously, one of the things that we flagged in the, the translational potential of research to practice was how research actually, rather than having an average for everybody, should have individual data points for everybody you collect. So, so there's lots going on in the graphs in this paper. So you, you guys will see it when it hopefully comes out. Um, but from a, a carb intake perspective, they uh, they intook about 20 grams an hour instead of the, the 60 grams potentially that that they were asked to. Um, came mainly from fluid uh, and gels, not very many solids. Solids were usually bananas from what I recall. Um, and actually half time was where they had the most um, and in the arrival to warm up period, obviously arrival to warm up wouldn't actually be during the exercise itself. So, mm. so we can almost put that to one side in terms of the, the, uh, the intake, uh, oh, sorry, the, re- the recommendations um, fluid wise, again, they didn't consume very much fluid at all. Um, but what they did was um, a mix of mainly water and carbohydrate and um, small amounts of electrolytes. The carbohydrate, con- sorry, the carbohydrate content drink actually had electrolytes as well. So it was a mix. Yep. Um, caffeine, they probably had the right amounts. Uh, they split it at the right times. They had the capsules and their fluids in that arrival warm up period. 
and then had more of their gum in the immediately pre and half time periods. Um, so that worked out quite well. But I think really probably the the takeaway message. It's quite hard to describe that to people without them being able to see the graphs. But but the the takeaway message from those were probably that in terms of fluid, they probably consume enough fluid, but it needs to be a higher percentage of carb solution to meet the recommendations. So instead of having a 6%, I think we, I can't remember the numbers exactly off the top of my head, but from the paper, we worked out if it was a 10% solution, what grammage they would have got per hour in those certain periods. And it was a lot more closely matched to the recommendations. And off the back of that, we obviously had intervention into what we were doing um, within the changing room in terms of percent solutions and, and what we were giving the athletes. And we made it a lot more concentrated and almost at times into almost like a carbohydrate shot of fluid rather than um, rather than something like a commercially available sports drink. Yeah, that's fascinating because you do get into that problem, don't you, just the amount of volume and having to run and, and just yeah, fluid in the stomach and exactly. all that business. It, uh, well, listen, that's tremendous. I'm looking forward to, to seeing that when it comes out. We'll have to uh, stay think, tuned and upload it when, when it's time. I think the other thing, sorry, I, yeah. I was just going to say, I think the other thing that's quite novel about the paper as well is pre-recording anything before the athletes knew what we were doing. I went through with every single one of them what their intake was and how they split it. So we actually have a comparison of their reported fluid, carb and caffeine intake versus what they actually had within the changing room. Mm. So again, it gives us a good idea. It might be even worthwhile people doing it with their own athletes to understand, are they actually quite good at recalling and, and telling you? Because, you know, if you, you'll know when you speak to an athlete and you say, how much of that sports drink did you have half or a third but actually you don't really know so we we actually looked at whether whether it was quite uh quite closely matched they they over reported their carbohydrate intake so actually if you sat with somebody within this group at least obviously it might be different for yours but but they tended to think that they had a lot more carbohydrates than they did um yeah, so they reported more fluid intake, more carbohydrate intake, and caffeine was actually exactly the same because obviously a caffeine yeah. capsule or a shot is a fixed amount mm. as opposed to you don't just sip a, a pre-workout shot or you don't just take half of a capsule. Um, so that was a lot more closely matched. Yeah. And were there any athletes that were just totally off the marks in terms of uh, just terrible with a recall? I, I think so, yeah, from the top of my head. And, and we had one, for example, who didn't report much fluid intake, but actually took the most fluid by about 500 mils more than everybody else, <laughs> not even a small amount either. That's awesome. But he, I think he already told us we had one bottle of fluid over the course of a game and then sips next to the pitch, but, but actually he had way, way more than than what he reports. Difficult, isn't it, for certain athletes and certain dispositions? It's like they're so focused on other things, potentially, that uh, they just totally lose track or are unaware of, of, of what's going in. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, I think it's it's probably also, it gives you an idea as well or an um, a indirect idea of sometimes whether you can trust what, what the athlete says in terms of recall. Yeah. So again, when you go through maybe your screening process in the first place with the athlete, 
and they tell you what a day usually looks like for you, you already almost know are they over or under reporting. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I think it'll be a good paper when it comes out. Yeah, tremendous. I mean, that's uh, really insightful stuff. And, and again, congrats! Incredibly difficult to uh, to actually collect all that. So pretty yeah. impressive. Uh, listen, if we circle back to your obviously your time in in football across all these teams, I'm curious with being exposed to these different environments and teams. You know, what are some of the things that stand out, or maybe some of the commonalities of some of the best practices, and what are potentially some of the areas where going from different club to different club, you noticed certain gaps uh, or roadblocks that that stood out to you? Yeah, I think, well, to be fair, nutrition, it's difficult, especially in the UK, because it's quite a, a young discipline. Like, I don't think, I've not yet been into a team where I'm not the sole practitioner there. So my ideas could be very different to other people's ideas. So I guess as a, as a pre-warning, I guess my views to this question will probably, like, it might not be the same as other people's, but it's, I guess it's my opinion. Um, I think, I honestly believe that in nutrition, a lot of practitioners don't focus enough on the fundamental pillars of, you know, the non-Hollywood stuff in nutrition. Everyone's chasing what I would term Hollywood things like what can solve this cure this etc etc as opposed to next greatest how do we fuel properly daily like that has to be the the basis of probably everything you're doing instead of chasing cbd and ashwagandha and and things that don't really have much evidence yet not saying they won't but currently there's not much evidence to say they they do too much Oh no! I was just gonna say, yeah. I mean, that, that that fundamentals bucket is so big, isn't it? There's so much room to to make yeah. progress there, and that sort of specialization or personalization or or these kind of shiny new toys, if you will, is just such a small bucket. If there is benefit there, that it, it, to your point, I mean, you just gotta keep revisiting those fundamentals, don't you? To be able to, there's always some little wins in there that just take time to to really be able to to layer in effectively. Yeah. I think one of the things that I did early on was create almost like a blueprint of these are the things that are the main focus. It would be, you know, daily fueling and attempting periodization with the majority of athletes. How do we load for performance? How do we fuel the performance as it happens? How do we recover from performance? And and really actually go, okay, what are the fundamental primary focuses of each of those things and and how do we achieve that in the best way possible and i think there's not again in in football there's not a lot of athletes that probably do all that in a and what you would say uh meeting guidelines recommendations uh definitely a tremendous great practice isn't it i mean for not only yourself but the rest of the performance staff to really have clarity on, on what you're trying to achieve and then even for the athletes, the athletes are so busy with so many different demands and people talking to them to have a bit of simplicity and clarity with sort of the what are the action items that they're meant to achieve as well, because nutrition can turn into homework every day, all day long, all the time for for, for players. And that can just become, uh, you know, noise and they start to block it out after a while. Yeah. And also, I think it's quite difficult sometimes um, as a practitioner trying to be evidence-based or evidence at least evidence informed 
you know, when an athlete says, tell me about this and you give them a bit of an overview and then they say, but does it work? And always the answer is as a scientist, it depends. And that's <laughs> what the athlete doesn't want to hear. Yeah. It's the opposite of what they want to hear. They want a yes or a no. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's how you communicate with certain people is a, an important aspect, I think, of, of practice. Yeah, and I think ultimately as well, I mean, especially if they're asking a practitioner like yourself, I mean, they're sort of after your opinion as well of kind of deciphering through all this information. Um, you know, as you say, like, what do you think? Do you think I should take it? Do you think I should not take it? And cer certainly it does depend, but uh, nice to be even asked a question, so to speak, for a lot of practitioners is of being, should I be taking this rather than having to come out of the other way of, of trying to convince yeah. the athlete of what they should or shouldn't but be taking? You definitely have to stay, stay abreast of, the cranks online because the questions are coming your way whether you like it or not and if you don't have an answer then all of a sudden buy-in will disappear because they think oh you don't know what you're talking about because you've never heard of Insert. you know unicorn <laughs> whatever yeah yeah no it is it is a challenge isn't it and it's uh it's an interesting one to try to turn those things around into an opportunity but sometimes it is uh amazing what different athletes can end up uh gravitating towards but that's the conversation for another day uh well listen uh tremendous uh insights here andreas i mean i don't want to i want to be respectful of your time here when we talk about performance nutrition you allude to the fact that it's a very uh new discipline young discipline you know where do you think performance nutrition is going over the next five or ten years well i think um Again, that's a difficult question. To be honest, we've not really come very far in the last five or 10 years, I don't think. Um, I honestly don't think there'll be too much difference in terms of practitioners. I think, obviously, like strength and conditioning, starting to become quite a saturated environment uh, in terms of people trying to get into nutrition and working with athletes. Um, so I'm hoping that in the next five, 10 years, it means that you know, there's more qualified personnel. The standard of delivery improves um, year on year and person on person. There's more help sought from qualified, experienced practitioners. Um, hopefully the, the term sports nutritionist will end up becoming a protected uh, title. Like that's something that, that needs to happen. Um, yeah, I think, again there's a lot of people where you can just put nutritionist in your bio having never done anything before or taken a week long course. Um, and I think that's where nutritionists get a little bit of a bad rap. Like for example, myself and a lot of others, you know, I spent what 10 years in academia learning to do what I do. That's more than any dietitian. And I'm not, I'm not battling a dietetic, um, profession it's a great profession but but for them to to not consider a nutritionist as someone who's qualified if if they've done that sort of thing is is massive i think probably the us will catch up eventually where you know they don't just employ dietitians that don't really have um again this isn't all dietitians but just because i did dietetics doesn't mean that i have an understanding of exercise physiology exercise metabolism which is you know for performance is is imperative and um, so hopefully like there'll be like the uk it'll end up in the us being something that's that's aligned to the dietetic association 
there will also be a nutrition branch to that or sport nutrition branch to that. Um, a lot of dietitians who've then gone and sought further education on on how to fuel sport and performance, which is great. I think that's that's the ideal. Um, but I think that that needs to be become aligned in some of the countries where it's not and become that protected term. That's a bit of a ramp from me, sorry. <laughs> oh, good. I, yeah, totally agree. And, um, uh, and Go ahead. Sorry, my, la- my last point probably just thinking is obviously personalised nutrition as well is is something that we strive to to do within the athletic populations where we look at bloods and we look at how certain things apply to certain situations. Um, but actually, probably with general public, that needs to that personalized nutrition experience needs to be a bit bit better data available to to the people that it actually belongs to and um, like having ownership of test results and things like that so that they can go and seek uh, their own help uh, their own support and um, might even be things in the future of like eventually mapping people's genomes to actually understand a bit more about the effects certain things have on them the metabolomics things like that but that's like a hundred that's a hundred years down the line not five <laughs> to ten years <laughs> yeah exciting space isn't it uh, listen to wrap things up then and uh, if you were to give some advice to uh, you know a young practitioner on on the space or an insight from your time what would that be uh, I think just work ethic I think that's the biggest thing um in the early days just prioritizing you know your work uh, as opposed to other things as as bad as that is sometimes it's important if you want to get to where you want to be 100 percent um i think again well i know that the links that you make in every role that you have have a knock-on effect to potentially where you go from from my own experience you know moving club to club in terms of consultation and and things like that have often come from recommendations or somebody's moved from one team to another and now instead of only being with that team one day a week now I'm that team one day a week and that team one day a week and then it grows and grows and grows and eventually uh seven days <laughs> <laughs> eight days yeah. but I think I think the, the links with people are important alongside that that work ethic yeah tremendous well We'll definitely include all the links to your papers in the show notes. Andreas, you know, where's the best place for people to stay connected with you and keep up with your tremendous work? Thanks. I guess I'm trying to become a bit more um, uh, active on Twitter. Uh, I've, I came off that a little bit ago. Um, Instagram mainly is is the the platform that I engage on. Um, so mine is uh, Andy, A-N-D-Y underscore Casper K A S P E R. So Andy underscore Casper. And it's the same on Twitter, to be fair. Um, so exactly the same. So nice and easy. Well, again, appreciate the time, Andreas, and uh, best of luck the rest of the way with uh, Newcastle. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the, uh, the conversation. Thanks for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. As always, appreciate you taking the time. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. It's a big help to the show and keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. 
You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's performance podcasts.